Hello and welcome to Impact Quantum, a podcast about quantum computing for developers and engineers. This episode comes courtesy of Disruptive Technologists and was originally recorded as a panel discussion on the disruptive power of quantum computing. Our very own Frank Lavinia is among the expert panelists. Have a listen. But, first, here's some dubstep. Hi everyone, I'm Lauren, the founder. I wanted to say hi to everyone. Our MC is actually the one who's introducing this. Hey, Sap. Sap is from Microsoft. We love him. Um, he's got so much experience. He's done this before, and actually, he's a lot more fun than I am. So, Sap, go for it. Talk to you guys thing. again. And apologies if you can hear, I have a little bit of um, grumbling dogs in the background. So apologies if you can hear them fighting. It's the end of the day, they want to go outside. Um, so welcome attendees to our fun and um, absorbing um, disruptive techs event. Uh, my name is Sepp Demeglio, as Lauren said, and I'm the disruptive technologist. I'm seeing Microsoft's um, UC and accessibility engineer. And this is our one-hour casual discussion, which we will be, which will be recorded and posted on the Disruptive Technologies YouTube channel. Very typical. This will be followed up next week by an attendee Q and A. Today, we're also giving away three free two-day passes to Upflex, a fabulous global office space, on-demand workspaces that set your teams free, and three beautiful futuristic books by Rebecca Costa, including On the Verge. To enter that lottery, just email your name, title, and company and email address to info at disruptivetechnologists.com or to organizer at the Disruptive Technologists NYC meetup. We'd like to very quickly thank our friends and supporters who've been with Disruptive Tech for the last several years. Although we aren't together in person quite yet, we want to show them our thanks. So thanks to Microsoft Reactors. Those are neighborhood campuses, campuses where developer and startup communities meet learn and connect. Thanks to Ramona Wright for supporting our podcasting program. Thanks to Esther Dyson for supporting our newsletter program. Thanks to Scott Moss for helping us upgrade our website. Thanks to Zeotag, the interactive video services. And finally, thanks to Disruptive Technologists Chairman David Soren. Looking forward to be able to meet again in person soon. And now I'm going to hand things over to our moderator, Ivy Cohen of Ivy Cohen Communications. Ivy, you can take it away. Thank you, Sep. It's great to see everybody here, uh, however virtual. You know, Sep said this was going to be really fun. And I've been scratching my brain for some quantum computing humor. And I'm, I'm really struggling. If we were really going to do this in the spirit of quantum computing, this would be the fastest event you've ever experienced. And we'd be saying goodnight right now. So with that in mind, we're going to introduce our four fabulous panelists. First, we have Mark Mattingly-Scott. He's a disruptive technologist board member and a former IBM quantum computing architect for 30 years who just started his exciting new job as GM for EMEA for quantum brilliance. Mark's gonna talk about his story and the innovative new challenges he's taking on. Next, we have Petra Soderling who has run teams and innovation projects at Nokia Finland. She's the founder and has managed two startup companies in New York City and a startup in New Orleans. And her, her work has been in areas of developing uh, businesses around mobile apps, 
and real estate 3D and some other things we'll hear about today, obviously in the quantum world. Most recently, Petra's worked as a senior advisor for the Finnish government's innovation funding agency, Business Finland. As an advisor to the Finnish government on quantum computing, space technology, smart mobility, AI and cybersecurity. And Petra lives and works in Colorado. Danica Hannon, our third panelist, is a leader in, of the Minnesota Quantum Computing Meetup. Danica served on the Women in Quantum Advisory Board, volunteered for a quantum computing company and AI startup called Bolts AI, and became a relationship manager with Cambridge Quantum Computing, as well as the deputy head and IQSD chair for the Quantum Strategy Institute. Our fourth panelist, Frank Levine, Levine, am I pronouncing it correctly, Frank? It, it's Levine or Lavinia. Levine. I've been called a lot of bad things, so as Levine, long as it's not a bad Levine thing. Levine works. We should get it right. Thank you. Uh, Frank's a published author, a podcaster, and a conference speaker who's discovered the near limitless potential of quantum computing at a Microsoft research conference in 2019. In 2020, he shared his enthusiasm. In 2020, he launched the Impact Quantum podcast to share his enthusiasm for quantum technologies with fellow data scientists and engineers. In 2021, Frank left Microsoft to join Coverse, a platform that enhances security solutions for highly sensitive data, big data implementations. So that's a lot of information that uh, compresses big careers with big ideas and a, a lot of serious technology. Let's get down to the quantum computing. To start off, I'd love it if all four panelists could take turns weighing in in a minute or so about the quantum computing project you are currently working with or are most excited about. Mark, why don't you start us off? Okay, so um, I've been uh, giving some thought to this and thank you for, uh, thank you for inviting me, first of all. Um, the, I think they, the, uh, challenge of or one of the big challenges of quantum computing is <clears throat> how do we make it actually make a difference um, we see large um, superconducting quantum computers which look very beautiful um, and may one day actually provide some acceleration some speed up some computational benefit um, I think the the key question there though is what's stopping us um, or what's going to enable us to really bring quantum computing into uh, everyday use and that's something i'm working on at quantum brilliance um and basically it's about getting quantum computers to run at room temperature uh, and i think um if if i imagine the parallels with something like the silicon the development of silicon technologies um i think in maybe 40 50 60 years when we look back i probably won't be around but uh my kids and my grandchildren look back um, they'll say, okay, that was the moment where quantum computing suddenly got very, very real. Um, and I think we're on the cusp of that right now. Great. And we'll hear more from you about that over the course of this discussion. Um, Petra, want to weigh in? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm new to quantum computing. I've looked into this space uh, for about 18 months now. And the trigger was, my native country, Finland, investing in a quantum computer and starting to build a superconducting quantum computer. And I was thinking, wow, what is that? And I started to look into this. Now, privately, uh, I've also launched a podcast. 
it's not on quantum computing, but it's on how government funding affects and, and creates new industries. And quantum, quantum computing is a, a prime example of an industry that would not exist if it wasn't for government funding. So I'm most passionate about looking, looking into uh, the streams of money right now, where they are coming from, where they're going, who's paying for what. Sure. Frank, what are you working on or most excited about right now in quantum? So I would say I'm most excited about, I think I will echo what Mark said. I think we are at that, that um, you know, Fairchild semiconductor kind of age or the invention of the transistor kind of uh, age with quantum. And I, I will geek out with anyone who's willing to listen about quantum computing. And, uh, you know, primarily I'm, I, I, my background is software engineering and artificial intelligence. So, I, you know, I, I am just trying to teach myself how to write these new quantum algorithms and how to teach others, because I think there's going to be a, pardon the expression, a quantum shift in the career space, uh, because I think it's going to be one of those, it, once we kind of get the hardware thing figured out, we're suddenly going to realize, oh, you know what, we don't have a lot of engineers that can uh, build uh, right on these systems and let alone integrate them into the enterprise. I think there's going to be an enormous opportunity there. That's a really good handoff to Danica. Thank you so much, Ivy. There are a couple of things that I'm really excited about. So the first is with the work that we're doing at the Quantum Strategy Institute and the focus that we're bringing to businesses, that we're starting to see some new players reach out to us and respond to our LinkedIn posts. And we're starting to reach a new audience and broaden the ecosystem, which is really exciting. So as we think about the adoption drivers that Mark was talking about is the government funding that Petra was talking about that's helping expand this. And as Frank was talking about the upcoming career shift, um, with the Quantum Strategy Institute, it's just been wonderful to start to see the ecosystem expand and to see this groundswell of new players coming into space. Great. And we'll talk about that some more as well. Uh, Mark, could you tell us how we can delineate what it means to make something quantum? Let's level set here. Um, yeah, sure. So um, the... Uh, I think the most important aspect is to understand um, what what quantum potentially offers. What is this? What is this computational speed up that everybody is talking about? Um, and the probably the the most iconic and prototypical example of that is a quantum algorithm that was discovered um, by a professor at MIT, Peter Shaw, back in the 90s. And he basically, um, he took a problem which is computationally very, very hard in a classical computer. So finding the factors of a number um, and found a quantum algorithm to um, speed that up, to speed that up um, what we call exponentially. Give you a feel for that. If you want to, uh, if you want to factor a 2000 bit number, um, even using the biggest supercomputer on the planet, this will take billions of CPU years, it's infeasible. And that's the basis of pretty well all cryptography. When you buy something online, the, uh, um, the key, the cryptographic keys that are exchanged to enable you to make a secure payment, they're all based on the, uh, the infeasibility of factoring large numbers. With Peter Shaw's num uh, algorithm and an adequate number of qubits, um, such a factoring of a 2000 bit number would be possible perhaps in hours or or days, maybe minutes on a, on a, on a uh, suitably powerful quantum computer. 
And that's the kind of, that's the difference between a classic solution to a problem and a quantum solution to a problem. It's the difference between billions of years on the biggest supercomputer and it doesn't really matter if it's days or, or weeks. It's uh, the, 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 the difference is, uh, is simply uh, unimaginable. Um, we, you can't ex extend that kind of speed up to every problem that runs on a quantum computer, but that sets a kind of benchmark. And um, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of what's happening in the quantum computing space is focused either on developing new hardware, new types of qubits, um, or developing such algorithms like Peter Shaw's algorithm to solve other kinds of problems. So there are two different aspects, the hardware and the software. And what underlying it all is this incredible or this potential for incredible speed up. Petra, can you talk to us a little bit about how different countries around the world are publicly funding quantum research and why public funding versus private funding? Yes, I'm going to start with the public because um, there's so much, well, there's so much money going on in both streams, public and, and private. But if we start from close to home, um, U.S. Congress approved the, um, the National Quantum Initiative Act 2018 and allocated $1.2 billion to quantum computing research in this country. $1.2 billion, that's a huge, huge sum of money. But hear me out. Around the same time, Germany allocated 2 billion euros. So US 1.2, Germany 2 billion. Uh, India has allocated about the same amount of money as the US. Um, Netherlands, a tiny country on the map, just like a tiny spot, you can't even see it on the map. They have allocated half of the money that the US government has allocated. And then of course there's China. They've said they are going to invest 10 billion US dollars. Now, all of this money is going to be allocated over a certain number of years, typically five to seven years. So we're not comparing apples to apples here, but it gives an indication to which are the countries who are currently putting taxpayer money into quantum computing research and what are the, the quantities. So um, the fact that China is outspending or they're saying they're outspending the US by a factor of 10 is quite interesting. Um, but, but there are other surprises like India who would have thought that India is going to put so much of their taxpayers' money, money into this. Um, and then, and I should mention Finland's 20 million euros into our tiny computer as well. But then if you look at the government funding and what's happening in these countries, uh, there's a stark difference between the U.S. and the rest of the world in terms of private money. So what uh, the U.S. is doing with the public money is very quickly and efficiently turning that into commercial action. So um, a year ago, the U.S. triggered um, about half of this 1.2 billion, 600 some million, into um, five different national labs that are now doing the quantum uh, information services and quantum internet, which uh, you can imagine is uh, for your national security interest is a very interesting, but um, private companies, there was IBM, Microsoft, um, Lockheed Martin put in 300 million. So 600 from the government, 300 from the private. And this is unique to the US. Uh, Europe and Asia are not doing it this way. I'm gonna stop here and let others comment. Just to make a comment about something you just said. So um, you mentioned Finland. 
um, and the what appears to be a small amount of money for Finland, but that's highly leveraged money. Um, and Finland has a um, incredible track track record in uh, in low temperature um, low temperature physics, low temperature operations. Um, and when I was back at IBM, I had a team in Finland, and they always told me, you know, if we when the Finnish the the, the anecdote about the Finnish army. Um, putting on their winter clothing when the temperature drops below minus 20. Um, so there's no better place on earth to, uh, to, to work on uh, cold temperature, low temperature physics, but you do have, Finland does have an amazing, um, skill set there. Um, the, I think the, uh, in terms of where is the race going to be run? Yes, the US is investing a lot. It's, uh, able to leverage that with venture capital. But my uh, analysis and my experiences have told me that the the underlying technology, um, the place on Earth where that's really the most dense in terms of universities doing research, um, <clears throat> potential customers, is the European Union. And the one other thing you mentioned about India, um, that is a very, very, very foresighted in decision by India to invest in quantum computing because it's also pretty clear that um, probably ultimately the majority of the quantum computing programmers will come from India. There is a huge, huge um, pool of, of software development talent in India. So quantum computing programming is, uh, is essential for the Indian uh, economy. Now we're going to have Frank give us some examples of how quantum computing can affect different industries and, and uses. Before we do that, Mark, I'd appreciate it if you could talk a little bit more about, or really introduce, where are we going to see quantum computing being used to solve real problems? A lot of our audience members want to understand okay. the, the potential. Okay, so I'll keep it, I'll keep it short. Um, the original impetus to, to uh, develop quantum computers came from the realization that um, you could use a what we call a qubit, which is a, a simple quantum mechanical system, to simulate any other quantum mechanical system. That sounds very abstract. Um, what that means in practice is if you have some qubits, um, you can use them to simulate molecules. You can use them to simulate the behavior of uh, atoms. You can use them to simulate materials, pharmaceuticals, drugs, everything. Um, uh, you can't do that right now. So these are things that will be uh, will become possible with quantum computers. So that's the first type of problem. The second type of problem is a whole class, a whole whole set of problems around machine learning and artificial intelligence, because spurred on or initiated by the work that Peter Shaw did, um, there's a whole set of um, let's say possibilities possibilities to accelerate a lot of different things in what's called linear algebra. And linear algebra lies at the root of a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning things. Uh, the third area is around uh, optimization. And this is probably long-term, the thing that's gonna have the biggest impact. Um, the fact that we're sitting here in a, in a Zoom call and the packets are you know, whizzing backwards and forwards across the Atlantic, that's all being optimized. You know, Where the packets go, that's all being observed and optimized on the fly. If you walk around Manhattan with a mobile telephone, um, if you drive, uh, if you order something online and it gets delivered to your house, there's a whole 
there's a whole infrastructure which is using optimization. It, uh, optimization means we get food every day. It means uh, we get fresh water, electricity. It means that the um, that the when you flush the toilet, it works. It's everywhere, and quantum computing will um, will change the way we optimize things. Uh, the potential long-term effect on society is uh, I'm completely you know blown away by what that might mean. And so, with that in mind, Frank, maybe we could start with uh, one or two examples. I understand you can talk to us a little bit about how the nitrogen cycle can improve energy efficiency and how we can improve the world's energy use dramatically with quantum computing. Absolutely. And I, I actually just was at the Association of the U.S. Army uh, Conference in D.C. And what was interesting was the interest uh, uh, in, in quantum computing in regards to Shor's algorithm, which would break encryption. So there's definitely a lot of, of interest in that space, but it's not just about encryption. Um, you know, one of the things we can't do with classical computing is simulate molecules, right? So one example, nitrogen fixation, every, every plant that's out there can do two things really well that we really kind of struggle with. One is effectively pull nitrogen from the air and use it. What we do today is we create nitrogen fertilizer, which consumes a lot of energy. Depending on who you, whom you ask, it's somewhere between three to five percent, or twenty-five percent of the world's energy is, and carbon emissions kind of come out of that. So, just right off the bat, if that problem is solved, just the nitrogen cycle, a significant amount of carbon redu uh, reduction could be reduced in the atmosphere almost right away. Um, another aspect would be solar panel efficiency. Solar panels are approximately twenty to thirty percent efficient, meaning that they only capture that much energy from the sun. Potential uh, chlorophyll plants, every green thing you see out there, um, basically can capture it anywhere from 40 to 60% efficiency. So right off the bat, those are two issues. And, and, and you know, thirdly, you know, battery technology, right? Everyone who has a smartphone, right? What do they carry around now? They carry around a little extra battery pack. Why is that? Well, that's because we're still working with battery technology that hasn't really seen any major advancements in quite some time. Now, there are some potential uh, technologies on the horizon, but, you know, batteries power everything. Uh, again, at this conference, you know, you saw kind of the usual suspects of, you know, tanks and kind of uh, things like that. But there was a, what was surprising was the amount of battery uh vendors there and battery technology vendors kind of because as we get into these inter internet of things and kind of more uh cyber-based uh you know um, uh, militarization uh, you know the technology digital transformation you know battery technology uh, still has a way to go so danica thanks a lot frank danica can you talk to us a little bit about how business leaders can or should start preparing for the disruptions that quantum computing will bring? And, and when do we really need to be prepared? Because based on what we've heard so far, it sounds like some of this is pretty far into the future. Yeah, absolutely, Ivy. So that's a fantastic question. So I'm going to answer the second part of that first of when do you need to start preparing? And I would really encourage all business leaders to start taking a hard look at this now, whether you're someone whose use case is going to be farther in the future, or if you have a more near-term use case like optimization, one of the challenges with quantum computing is that it's a very complex area. And to 
Mark's point about the workforce that will likely be coming out of India, where they are very highly skilled in the STEM areas, to work with the quantum computers you need to have a very good understanding of the physics, the math, and the computer programming. So just on the technical side, there's a pretty high bar for being able to write algorithms for these problems and for being able to understand how to translate your problems into algorithms that are friendly for those. So just on the technical side, we know that this is something that takes quite a while to ramp up. And also on the business side, to get back to the first part of your question, it helps to be really thoughtful about how you approach this. So if you're a business leader who's thinking about, all right, I know that I'm in finance and we're already, we're already starting to see portfolio optimization taking place at some of my competitors. So this is something I need to think about. If I were a financial leader, what I would be doing right now is first getting a sense of what are the major areas where we're going to see our operations get impacted? So portfolio optimization is a great example. We have Monte Carlo simulations where you're understanding risk and you can do risk modeling with quantum computers that can outpace classical computers. A very new area that's just emerged today is quantum natural language processing. So you can start to think about where you could apply that to functions like compliance and how you could use that to fight fraud. So the very first thing you should do is get a sense of where will you be impacted and then start to talk to your leaders, both on the technical side and on the business side. For from the technical side, get an understanding of what systems do you have in place now and what would you need to start to change to make it friendly for the quantum computing side. And then also talk to your business leaders to understand, right, if we were to do a proof of concept here, what would be some of those metrics that would let us know this is a really good value for the long run? This is something that can save us money or it can save us time. So understand the technical needs as well as understand how it's going to impact your bottom line. And the last thing I would say is start thinking about your people resources. Quantum computing represents a big change. So you're not only going to need people who can understand the technical side of it, you're going to need people who can champion it. They can really be those thought leaders within your company and help you find those use cases where you can get that advantage. And you're also going to need people on the business side who can act as that middle ground, who can talk to the tech leaders, who can talk to the business leaders, who can help bring everything together. So to wrap it all up, if you're someone who's starting to think about what's the timing for this, I'd really encourage you to start looking into it sooner rather than later. Even if you don't submit a dollar this year, just start thinking about it. Start thinking about your roadmaps and where this could impact you and, and take a, a very hard look at your business and see where you think this could give you an advantage and start pulling in your leadership to talk about that. Thank you. Uh, we have I have some additional questions prepared, but I would like to encourage anyone with any questions to please Type them in the chat now, and we'll do our best to address as many as we can while we're all together today. Anything we don't get to today, uh, you can be sure will be addressed on October 20th during the fireside chat on quantum computing, so phase two of, of this program. Ivy, may I really quickly add something to what yeah, Danica please. said uh, on being a business leader? Also look at this internationally. The, the talent shortage is real, uh, and, and you should look at the talent, not just in your own country, but internationally, and just keep that in mind. Absolutely. And I think, Petra, the examples that you gave earlier of the countries that are investing in quantum computing and in talent building because it, the investment is not just the cash. The cash is going into humans that are developing the skills. Correct. And creating the technical capabilities and the machinery to do this, right? Um, 
Mark, can you talk a little bit more about the commercial use of quantum? Perhaps give us uh, a sense of how quantum in its early stages is being applied right now, and then take us to any, any thoughts you have about how it will be applied commercially in the coming years or decades and you know, what's going to happen sure. while most of us are still alive and, and what's for our kids and grandkids. <laughs> I'm going to regret that, that phrase. Yeah. Um, so I think if we look at quantum computing now, I mean, there's, um, we had um, back in the eighties and the nineties, the idea that uh, that was, this could actually be something that might actually have a benefit. Um, and then there was a hiatus um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, where a lot of uh, tech companies went away and started doing their homework and started to think about how can we actually build these qubits? Um, and IBM kind of preempted that back in 2016, 2017, with the launch of their, uh, their, their um, quantum experience, so a publicly available um, API and toolkits and interfaces and, and GUIs to, to access real quantum computers. Um, what that has done is it's created, as I said, this, um, this pool of people who um, have actually had the ability to use a quantum computer. Um, that's not enough, though. And if we look at the majority, the overwhelming majority of all the quantum computing technologies that are available today, um, they all either use some kind of superconducting technology or they're in kind of photonics or uh, using trapped ions, all of which require very, very high end specialist hardware to drive them. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is a transition to a new phase where um, some of those technologies are actually, do actually have the potential to be miniaturizable, to, be, to become something that you could put into your perfectly normal commercial compute center. Some of those technologies don't because the operational expenses, the OPEX will basically kill you. Um, it will become, it would be very, very difficult to operate uh, superconducting uh, quantum computers in a commercial setting the way they're constructed at the moment. Um, and I think the, the, the kind of the holy grail, which uh, everyone is hoping for, is a scalable, cheap way to produce uh, quantum computers that work at room temperature. Um, and that essentially are produced in much the same way as, uh, as silicon chip is today. Um, and I'm not going to do any, uh, I'm not going to push it on the um, advertising that the new company I'm working for. But <clears throat> that was the reason I, I went from IBM to Quantum Brilliance. It's because I saw exactly that as being the, the game changer. So <clears throat> um, the ability to write algorithms, a scalable room temperature um, underlying technology. And then I think what's going to happen is we, we will see small quantum computers being applied in places, in, in locations where today perhaps you're using a GPU or a TPU, some kind of accelerator card, or perhaps it's an, an autonomous robot or an, uh, an aircraft or something that's under the sea, something that's not connected to any cloud or anything. Um, <clears throat> or in a uh, operational environment in the compute center where costs are paramount, where operational costs are the thing that really determines what you do. And I think <clears throat> small increments in performance applied to those, those kind of scenarios, that's where we're going to see quantum computing, quantum utility 
um, start to become relevant in a very, very short time. And where that leads to over the next decades, uh, who knows? If you'd asked somebody in the 1960s what we would be doing with transistors in 40 years, I think you would have, uh, you probably would have been asked if you'd been smoking something, uh, if you'd know what you were, what the answer was. So uh, Ram from our audience has asked about the influence of quantum computing in value growth companies. Uh, he expressed concern that many might not want to risk their requirement on quantum platforms since there are no such case studies. Uh, would anyone like to take that? So I, I, I could take it, but what I'd, clarification on exactly what that term means. What is meant by that? Let's see. Ram, if you could weigh in on the chat and share with us, that would be really helpful to clarify. In the meantime, can anybody, any of our panelists talk about cryptocurrency? Uh, Jeff expressed some concern that cryptocurrency people are, are seeing that, they're, that uh, they, there might be some risk to the cryptocurrency community and that CBDC by governments might be at risk from quantum. Uh, how long do you perceive quantum computing might be a threat to cryptocurrency, if any of you do? That sounds like one for, for Frank. So I, I, I've asked this question of crypto experts and didn't quite understand the answer. So um, if nothing is done, it pre presents a very serious threat uh, with the ability to um, do prime factorization. However, there are already people uh, working on this, and there will be some versions of quantum-resistant uh, encryption being applied to many of these uh, crypto, crypto networks. Uh, now, keep in mind, as cryptocurrency networks gotten, have gotten bigger, uh, the larger a system gets, the harder it is to roll out changes. So I would imagine that it's probably best to start today to, to upgrade all these algorithms. In fact, that's, that's the guidance that you get from the NSA is, you know, start um, upgrading your algorithms today uh, in order to, you know, given how slow government agencies are known to work, um, even if it does take 10 years or 20 years to develop a quantum computer capable of breaking this encryption, now's the time to start. Um, the other thing I would add is we had another question about, you know, what are two to three technical innovations that would explode the field of quantum computing? Uh, basically, I think having it so you could run something at or very close to room temperature, I think, is going to be a big game changer. So like Mark said, you're not going to get a cryo tank or liquid nitrogen uh, in your average commercial data center. And... Um, the other thing would be error correction. One of the one of the problems we have is dealing with these uh, qubits is that they are prone to producing errors. Now we had this problem with with electronic circuits too, and it just took some time to really fix the problem or address the problem. So I'm I'm confident that we will address the problem, but it's just a question of this is something that they don't generally teach in computer science degrees because this problem has been largely solved. In fact, when I was getting my degree, which was longer than I care to admit ago, um, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. But this is not really something unless you're going to work in, in, in a fab lab or whatever, you're not really going to deal with this. So it's interesting that this has kind of come full circle. Um, and I think that we really are in that, that transistor moment, you know, like Mark said, like, you know, who would have predicted that we would, you know, have smartphones 
you know, with more, multiple times more computing power than the Apollo program had, or all of NASA had. And, you know, we use it to share pictures of cats and uh, argue with strangers, right? That he, I would have assumed if somebody told me that in the 60s, wasn't live in the 60s, but if somebody told me that back then, I would have assumed that they were on definitely some form of mind-altering substance. So to follow up on that, uh, Ram clarified his question about value companies, uh, value and growth companies. And really what he's asking about is how do you convince customers to go with quantum computers? You know, how do you get, some might be risk averse to yeah. taking the quantum leap. So I, th I think the, the question to this is, um, the, it's the classic um, economics <clears throat> or business business uh, operations are the difference between capital expenditure and operational expenditure. That's what it comes down to. Capital expenditure is when you invest in buying some big new thing and operational expenditure is what you have to spend to run it. Um, quantum computers at the moment are very, very large capital expenditures. Getting one, building one, buying one is, you know, it's a multi-year, multi-decade research project. Um, and uh, complicated to run and big and unwieldy. You have to fill them up with liquid nitrogen or helium once a week. Um, <clears throat> uh, so they're, they're big on both. The economic argument about when will people actually start to invest and start to buy quantum computers and use them in anger um, is when that second one drops so that it's comparable with what people are using already. Um, if you go in a commercial compute center, they have 19-inch racks. These are full of mostly Intel CPUs. There'll be some NVIDIA GPUs in there. There may be some um, tensor processing units in there, each of them doing what they're good at. And I think very rapidly now, we're going to see a future in which there's a QPU, quantum processing unit, a quantum accelerator. And uh, basically, the software knows, okay, for certain problems I use my GPU, for other problems I use the CPU, and for a particular class of problems where we know that there's a quantum speed up, you know, a, 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 a quantum utility, I'll send those to the quantum processing unit. And I think we're going to get there in a in very, very few years because uh, assuming we can keep the operational expenses down, then Ram's question is, is very relevant. Um, then there is absolutely no reason why a normal commercial entity, a company might say, okay, then it's pretty clear uh, for this particular problem, it's economically very advantageous to buy some QPUs and then it will happen. Um, and that's a different economic model and a totally different approach to exploring the technology itself, which is what most of the industry is focusing on. And so I, I don't know if that answers Ram's question. I hope so. Um, to put a number on it, uh, um, within a handful of years, we're going to see these things uh, in the commercial compute center. And, and maybe and to would, add, oh, go ahead, Mark. Oh, I, I would add is that I think you're going to see, given that we're in the era of the cloud, I think you're going to see just a lot of folks spin up Amazon um, uh, Bracket or Microsoft Azure Quantum or IBM has a pretty big quantum offering all in the cloud. So I think that, you know, the whole idea is that you don't have to, you know, buy a quantum computer. You can kind of, you know, just use the cloud model that, you know, would make it much more uh, practical and approachable. Exactly. I was going to say the exact same point. So there are this private money going into this hardware agnostic 
emulators and simulators that, you know, the end users, the banks and telecom companies then can use, or they can use Microsoft Azure and, and um, IBM's programs. Thank you, Petra. Uh, Mohammed asks, would it be possible for quantum computing to explore scientific breakthroughs like particle physics? Uh, he asks, would it not be difficult to make a breakthrough in something that we may not know much about? I'm just wondering on the limitations of quantum computers. So I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this one. I, I would say, I would say absolutely. I think that um, the more we understand about subatomic or particle physics, the better we can build, um, the better we can build quantum computers and understand them. I, I would say that, you know, you, you could not have had the transistor had there not been a century or more of exploration into electro, uh, electricity electromagnetism. I think that the, the, the two will help each other. I think there's a good, you know, you be get better at one, you can use that to get better at the other, and you go back and forth on that. And I think it would create this, this upward drift of uh, having better understanding of how, you know, it's just like the old thing, you know, you, the researchers figure out how something is possible and the engineers kind of figure out how to make it work in a practical environment. Mark, did you want to add sure. to that? Yeah, so there are some um, in um, in particle physics, so particle physics is about uh, high energies, um, and particle physics is normally about how the how the core of an atom behaves. Um, uh, it's about the actions of the strong and weak nuclear forces, interactions at various levels. There are problems in particle physics where uh, quantum computers have various types. I mean, we haven't even talked about the different types of quantum computers. There are quite different flavors, if you will. Um, so there are problems in particle physics where quantum computers look very, very promising uh, in terms of their ability to uh, further our understanding. There are a number of problems in particle physics which are very, very, very hard and likely to remain that way. Um, but I think that's illustrative of a very important point. Quantum computing is not a panacea. It won't solve everything. What it will do is drastically change the landscape of what is trivial to solve and what's not. Um, and many things that today are impossible to solve, impossible to do, will become trivial, but not everything. So you're going to see a um, you know, change in the landscape of uh, uh, what problems we can solve. Um, the effect for me, other than the, the uh, being in a deep tech startup where we're working on one of these very promising room temperature technologies. The other thing that always fascinates me is um, having grown up or not even grown up, having worked at IBM on, from, the, from the birth of the World Wide Web, and seeing what happened with the web firsthand. Um, what's the social, economic and political impact of quantum computing going to be long term? Uh, I find that fascinating. Um, and um, I'm sure, or I'm, I'm optimistic, optimistic that that's going to be um, comparable with, or maybe even bigger than what happened with the internet. So interesting question, but leads to all sorts of uh, even more interesting uh, aspects. Let's talk about talent for a moment. Um, Danica, can you talk a little bit about how people can move into the quantum computing industry and thrive? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about that, Amy. Um, so to share a bit of background, 
I worked on moving into the quantum computing space for five years. <laughs> so if you want to move into the space, I absolutely encourage you to do that. Um, what I would say, one of the first things you need to have is a very strong why. So for me, it was all about quantum mechanics. I started learning about quantum mechanics in about 2016 and just was fascinated by them. Studied that on my own for a couple of years in 2018. That's when I decided I really wanted to be strategic about moving into this space. And so I started taking steps towards doing that. And when I look back on my journey, and as I think about the community that's growing now, the most impactful thing that you could possibly do for yourself is to network. So if you're here at an event like this, that's fantastic. And if you see someone in the audience who's asked an interesting question, and maybe you want to connect with them to learn more about that, I'd really encourage you to reach out to them on LinkedIn. Or if there's a panelist or a moderator or a host who's bringing up interesting points, then again, reach out to them on LinkedIn and see if they'd be open to having a conversation with you because this space is very small and incredibly well-connected. So to share some insight there, Petra and I met at a networking event, I believe it was last year. And Frank and I had the privilege of meeting earlier this year, and that's part of how this came together. So the first thing would be network. <laughs> network and get to know people in this space. Um, know what your why is, because it may take a while to get to where you want to go. And like any adventure, there's going to be problems that you just can't anticipate, and you're going to need to find a way to work around them. And then the third thing that I would say is to be very open to the possibilities. So currently I'm in a role for Cambridge Quantum where I'm in business development. And prior to that, I was working in compliance at a fintech firm. I never saw myself in a business development role until a gentleman who worked for Cambridge Quantum reached out and said, I think you'd be a good fit for this role. What do you think? Likewise, for the Quantum Strategy Institute, I was approached by the leader of that. And he said, I think that you're a generalist who has a good understanding of business and quantum. What do you think of taking on this role? So as you move through the space and as you network with people and as you talk with people and as you really figure out what drives you, be open to the possibilities. Because I'm willing to bet that with the pace that things are growing and with the growing need that we're seeing for all kinds of skill sets, that someone may see a skill set in you that you haven't recognized yet yourself. And if you're willing to be open to that, it'll really help take you far. Thank you. Um, Petra, how about you? How did you get involved in quantum computing in the first place and why? What drew you to it? Yeah, my, my drivers are uh, like on a higher level, uh, the dynamics between countries and, and, you know, public, uh, public investments, uh, who is doing it and, and why. I saw there was a question about China in the chat as well. And one of the things that is interesting in this space is because it's, it's related to national security. It's also a hot topic. So it's a buzzword. Um, it's easy to put out press releases and kind of stir a pot in that way. So the specific question on China's communication, um, quantum communication press release, um, it was a good conversation opening, not necessarily anything that China is doing differently than any other uh, country, US or the European Union is doing. However, I think uh, what you, the US is doing is where uh, the national labs are now working on the quantum information systems frameworks, protocols, and standards. Uh, it is public knowledge that NSA does not embrace post-quantum crypto, but private companies with public money in this country are doing exactly the same things. So th this was kind of the dynamic of all of this was my driver. Great. Frank, what got you into quantum computing in the first place and why? 
So it's a funny story. Uh, I was at this uh, conference Microsoft throws for uh, internally called MLADS. And Seth, you should totally go uh, when you get a chance. But basically, it's uh, Microsoft Research throws this uh, twice a year, this conference where they researchers kind of share what they're working on. And, you know, the idea is to get some cross-pollination. So I, I, I attended and I was just you know, the second day keynote was all going to be all, all about hardware. And I was kind of a little annoyed, to be honest, that, you know, why, why are we in an AI conference and we're talking about servers and things like that? But I'm glad I didn't get out of the room because um, the uh, head of Azure Quantum came up and explained what quantum computing was. And I had heard of it, but specifically what it could do for route optimization and optimization problems in AI and ML. And that's when my my head exploded with the possibilities, and there was some more uh, there was some more kind of conversation about that. Some of which is you know not necessarily public knowledge, but um, it was just fascinating that this was possible. So I was so excited and so jazzed about this. I went back to my hotel and I installed the Q Sharp uh, Developer Kit, and then I looked at it and I was like, well, well, now what? You know, <laughs> because the developing in a quantum uh, system is not the same as, you know, you just pull up a book on Python or you, you know, it's, it's a different type of way of thinking. And that's what got me inspired was kind of like, you know, wow, you know, this is the first time in a long time that I opened up a computer system and literally had no idea what I was doing. And at first I was a little bit alarmed at that. And then I realized, wait, this is the challenge of, you know, I haven't faced in, again, a lot longer than I care to admit. But um, it's just fascinating that because you have these different quantum uh, states, there's all sorts of, you know, logic gates that are possible that just don't exist in conventional computing. And, you know, I don't want to bore people with kind of like the the, the fundamentals of of that. And, and, you know, like, honestly, Kurt Cobain was still alive when I was studying this. So like it, it, it's one of those things where it's like, wow, this really takes me back. And like, this is just, this is the new frontier. So that's what got me into it. Thank you. Uh, Mark, how did you get into quantum computing in the first place and why? Um, um, So I I think it it started on the 21st of uh, July, 1969. Yes. Everybody's thinking what happened on yeah, very day specific. Day after the moon landing, right? Right. That was the day after the moon landing. So I was in the UK and uh, I was a seven-year-old boy. And my father had woke me up in the middle of the night and said, come on, we're going to go and watch this. Um, and uh, and I asked him, how did the, you know, how did that all happen? Um, how can I, you know, how can I, I'd like to do I'd like to, like to understand how that happened, buddy. And the next day he handed me a soldering iron and a box of components and said, okay, build yourself a radio. Um, and that was where my my uh, obsession with engineering, with electronic engineering, began. So that led me to study um, computer science, electronic engineering, applied physics, and I did a PhD in uh, information theory. Um, f- fast forward uh, 25 years later, almost 25 years later, or 30 years later, I was working at IBM, and I had a very um, unusual set of uh, qualifications um, combined with over 30 years uh, direct business experience um, and IBM said to me um, listen we've uh, we're now going to go public and co- begin to explore how quantum computing is uh, is going to 
it's going to impact the marketplace. Um, and we need people like you to transport that message because nobody else is going to be able to do it right now. So that's how I got into quantum computing or back into quantum computing. When I did my PhD, the very first qubits had been invented. Um, but um, I wanted to also just pick up on a point um, you just made, Frank, which was um, uh, there is a gap. There is a gap between people who understand how to use quantum computers and um, really how to use them and how to write new algorithms. And I would say, you know, the, the PhD in quantum information science or quantum physics is probably uh, a prerequisite. Um, and the people who just are interested in using them. So two different different things, you know, it's walking the path or being told what it's like to walk the path um, or reading a book and being able to write a book. Uh, we still haven't overcome that that gap. There's still a lot of work to be done. Um, but I think that's something that um, particularly the people in the, in the call today and for, particularly for the other panelists, we already talked about the skills gap. We talked about uh, talent. Uh, there is so much potential and so much uh, so much pull from the market. Um, anybody who's even remotely interested in quantum computing, it's it's a very very good future, a very good investment in your uh, in your own future. I encourage everyone to uh, to get involved. We only have time for a few more minutes uh, on the program, so I want to see if we can get uh, one or two more questions in. Petra, can we get back to funding a little bit? We've just had this very elaborate conversation about the potential of quantum computing, about what lies in the future, which governments and countries are involved in funding, some of the larger public companies. Uh, perhaps you could shed light on some of the private funding as well and, and talk a little bit about what are we funding? Uh, okay, the last question was <laughs> very difficult. But um, I would like to start with, an event that happened a couple of weeks ago that to the, uh, the technical people in this call probably is equivalent to reaching the quantum supremacy, which in the business world was the IPO um, uh, of IonQ. So the fact that we have a quantum company that is now a publicly traded company is a huge milestone in this industry. And, and I think finally we can call it an industry because not so long ago, it was just a scientific research field, and now it's a, it's a real industry. Now, before that, there was a, the acquisition uh, of Honeywell acquired IonQ, and then Rigetti announced um, within the past week that they're going to do a SPAC deal. And if you put all of this money together, uh, the, the Honeywell deal, the, um, the IonQ, and the Rigetti deal, what they have announced is total a billion dollars in investment in three companies only within the past weeks or months. So that's a huge chunk of money uh, that just went into uh, these three companies. Now, last year, there was about a billion dollar private VC investments into startups and, and a bit more mature quantum technology companies. Um, uh, but, but so how, how these companies are going to make money? That's a really interesting question. So there's a lot of money around and a lot of people are afraid that we're going towards that dot-com boom, that there's too much hype and that there might be a crash at some point. So that's something that mm -hmm. we need to be mindful of. 
currently, if you look at the, the funded VC, I'm sorry, the funded startups, what they're doing is they're producing um, products and services that are being sold to research teams. So they are doing uh, the, the emulators, the cloud services that we talked about, um, and, and instruments for labs and so forth. So basically, we're in a cycle where any exit would be an acquisition by these larger companies. So obviously, this conversation is just scratching the surface. There's so much more to cover off on. Uh, I really encourage everyone to attend the Fireside Chat next week. Lauren, did you want to take a handoff? Um, hi, thanks everyone for coming. Thank you for our sponsors. Uh, this was a great panel. Yes, Mark is just like Morpheus. <laughs> if anyone has questions for Morpheus, he's there next week, four o'clock. I'll be putting up the next meetup um, later tonight. So I didn't want to do back to back, but it'll be up tonight. And thank you everyone. Oh, and um, oh, I, Sebastian, red, uh, someone's asking you, red, red. or blue? Which one are you taking? Well, <laughs> red, definitely. Okay. And I, I've even got I've even got this thing here. Yeah. <laughs> I have a gap in my teeth. And same haircut. Yes. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. Thanks. Thank Great you. panel, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Impact Quantum. We know you're busy, and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask: please rate and review our podcast on iTunes. Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. Of course, you have subscribed to us, haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And, can't the world use a little more joy these days? So, go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.